0: Oh, I wanted to ask you, are you afraid of mountain lions?
1: Am I afraid of mountain lions? No, I am not, but I don't know what I would do if I encountered one. Okay,
0: because <laughs> I interviewed one yesterday on the podcast, but I'll leave that to you to listen to. It's on mountain Lion.
1: <laughs> okay, all
0: right. <laughs> Go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about what your current institution and rank in your institution is.
1: Yeah, um, so my name is Mona Abitouk. Uh I'm currently a third year medical student at
0: UC Davis School of Medicine. Uh, a couple of days ago you got some news that you were being pulled off clerkships and entered in sort of a roughly two week hiatus from clinical duties. Where were you when you found out about that?
1: Yeah, actually, I had um, earlier this week on Monday, I had just started at Kaiser um, ICU, um, internal medicine ICU, and um, it was Wednesday morning, so um, just just one day ago, um, where we got an email from uh, the dean of our school letting us know about the um, Uh, all the talk that's been going on with the pandemic of COVID-19 and um, officially canceling um, clerkship duties for
0: at least a week. Uh, So it hasn't been long for it to sink in by any stretch. It seems like, to me, it seems like a week ago that this happened, but yeah, I guess Mm -hmm. it was really only 24 hours ago. Um, Mm -hmm. How how have you been occupying your time since uh, you were sent home?
1: Yeah. So since being set at uh, um, set home, I think my main goal for being home and doing this, you know, social distancing thing, is to really just, um, you know, continue my medical education despite what's going on. Um, I feel like it's a good time to hunker down, study for board exams, study for shelf exams, really just build my foundational knowledge um, until I can finally get back into clerkships and you know, come back stronger than ever, hopefully.
0: And how are you doing that? How are you continuing your education?
1: Yeah, so, you know, practice questions like UWorld, um, you know, watching online medical, uh, online med ed with videos on certain topics that I feel like I'm weak on. Um, just really taking this time to, yeah, just build my knowledge and um, get stronger that way just because just because I'm not in clinic or in the hospital. Um, I feel like there's definitely always ways to learn
0: and is there anything you, because uh, there are clerkship directors that listen to this podcast across the country, are there things you feel like we could help to provide to you and your cohort across the country that, you're, that you don't have access to currently other than patients? <laughs> yeah, um,
1: that's a really good question. Um, let me think. Um, I think the biggest thing about, um, being away from clerkships is obviously the concern for, um, not having as much, um, patient interaction. And I feel like, especially for me, um, I learn the most, um, by taking on cases and, um, following patients and learning that way rather than through, like, just book study. Um, I think maybe one thing that clerkships can do that, um, I think has been um, in other clerkships is kind of those online um, cases that, like, um, teach you step-by-step, step, like, and ask you about, like, differential diagnoses and what your next step would be. Um, I think that might be helpful, just more resources via that way, uh, really core concepts that students should be hitting on.
0: So, so that would be, like, the aquifer cases?
1: yeah like the aquifer cases I felt like those were definitely helpful
0: in other um, clerkship okay well we're putting together um, a guideline for next week because you'll have a slightly more formal curriculum and the uh, some of the aquifer cases will be part of that um, that curriculum that you'll be doing from home right. um, and are you aware that the double had recommended that student third year students be be pulled
1: yes. Um, I was aware of that, and I think a lot of my classmates were also aware of that. Um, and uh, I think that recommendation came out, like, you know, 48 hours ago. And I think a lot of, like I did, and a lot of my classmates took it pretty seriously because the AAMC is, you know, has, you know um, a really important organization of medical professionals, and if that was their recommendation, it um, really started to make the situation more serious than it already
0: is just a couple last questions for you um the first first one is do you have any recommendations obviously it's only been 24 hours but have you found a way to sort of de-stress
1: um yeah it has only been 24 hours but i think um you know uh i think it's really important to have a schedule despite um not really having a schedule during these two weeks i think i um i respond well to structure and I think a lot of us that are in that school um, always respond to structure Um, so I guess I've just been trying to like over this last 24 hours been trying to like make a schedule um, figuring out uh, like what I want to do on a day-to-day basis making time for studying but also making time for like reading a book or catching up on you know household things that I usually put off or you know taking like a walk in the neighborhood um, um, getting some exercise in that way so yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I think, um, you know, really planning what you want to do on a day-to-day basis that will probably help with the, you know, de-stressing and the, and the um, you know, all the hysteria and frenzy that's going on right
0: now. So if I could recommend uh, another de-stress method for you, I don't know if you like birds at all, but um, <laughs> recently discovered that there's a webcam that you can get to on the internet um, mm-hmm. for UC Davis Medical Center and the webcam is trained on a mother peregrine falcon that lives on top of the hospital and has two eggs currently so um, and you can actually zoom in and zoom out um, to, to look at the peregrine falcon she's not doing much most of the day really funny.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but it's sort of a well, good my- meditative thing you know
1: well, yeah, I can definitely check in on time to time, see how that bird's doing. Um, it's interesting. I didn't even know that was going on. <laughs> and then
0: there's always Dancing with the Birds on Netflix if you have a subscription to Netflix, which...
1: Yes.
0: Excellent. Yeah, you should catch up on your Netflix, too. Right, um, definitely. Yeah, <laughs> planning on catching up on all those things
1: that you kind of put on the backseat when you're on clerkship.
0: So Yeah, make sure you take yeah. care of yourself while, during this time. Right, any last thoughts, Mona?
1: Um, I guess maybe a, a general message is just that I've been really impressed. Um, and uh, by all the like, all the healthcare professionals, all the attendings, all the residents that have really been coming together. Um, during this time, um, I've been really just impressed by the mobilization of like the healthcare system and also our community. So, I know everything that is happening right now seems a little crazy, but. I have a feeling it'll all be worked out, and we're all doing our part. So we can only we can only wait and social distance and hope hope for the best.
0: Oh, thanks, thanks, Mona. Well, thank you very much for joining us here on the Mountain Lion Podcast. Thanks so much. Well, it's good to be back uh, for another episode of Mountain Lion Podcasting and we're here in the Mountain Line studio, really my office, at UC Davis School of Medicine. And I want to thank Mona for participating in that interview. I just thought getting a student's perspective at a time like this, especially just 24 hours in, would be invaluable. And I'll try and check in with our clerkship students uh, here and there the next couple of weeks, because I think it's uh, just good to hear what they think and how they feel about what's going on there. The other thing I should announce, which is kind of exciting if you're a Mountain Lion podcast fan, is that we just hit over 50,000 plays uh, for Mountain Lion since starting this podcast back in 2014. Thus, I guess we're averaging maybe 10,000 plays a year or something crazy like that. So thank you all for tuning in and listening to these podcasts. We'll try not to let you down today. So today I'm going to do items 6 through 10 in the I Am Essentials book, and we're continuing with the infectious disease medicine section. The question is, a 19-year-old woman is evaluated for a one-week history of left ear canal paritis, redness, and pain. She swims one mile each day and has recently started wearing plastic earplugs to keep water out of her ears while swimming. Her hearing is normal. On physical examination, she is afebrile. Blood pressure is 98 over 66 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 62 per minute and respiratory rate is 16 per minute. She appears healthy and is in no distress. There is pain with tugging on the pinna and compression or movement of the tragus. The left ear canal is showing, I'm just going to describe it to you. I did take a photo of it and I may upload it later as an image on SoundCloud, but to describe it, it's just very erythematous um, looking canal and has a little bit of purulence in it as well. Uh, The TM looks fine. With irrigation, the left tympanic membrane appears normal. There is no preauricular or cervical lymphadenopathy. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, acute otitis externa, B, delayed type hypersensitivity reaction to earplugs, or C, malignant otitis externa, and final final choice, D, otitis media. And again, those choices are, which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? So this is a diagnosis question, obviously. A, acute otitis externa, B, delayed type hypersensitivity reaction to earplugs, C, malignant otitis externa, or D, otitis media. So um, this is a sort of a classic outpatient question. And for any of you that ever had summers where you swam a lot or you were ever on a swim team, this is a very, very common clinical uh, situation. So this patient has uncomplicated acute otitis externa, so the answer is A. Her swimming puts her at risk for the otitis externa because of the moist conditions created by daily water immersion. So it's like that water gets in there and just hangs out in where all the cerumen and other debris is and sets up shop there in terms of bacterial infection. Symptoms include otalgia, itching or fullness with or without hearing loss, and pain intensified by jaw motion. Signs include internal tenderness when the tragus or pinna is pushed or pulled and diffuse ear canal, edema, purulent debris, and erythema, which is what she had on the image that accompanies this with or without otorrhea. Otitis externa can cause erythema of the tympanic membrane and mimic otitis media. So sometimes you can get fooled in other words. In otitis externa however, pneumatic otoscopy shows good tympanic membrane mobility. Remember that thing you learned to do during pediatrics? (laughs) So if you have good tympanic membrane mobility that's not consistent with otitis media. It's more consistent with otitis externa. Management consists of clearing the canal of debris to optimize penetration of ototopical agents and allow visualization of the tympanic membrane to ensure that it is intact before initiating treatment. Topical agents have been the mainstay of treatment for uncomplicated otitis, although there is little information on the effectiveness of one topical treatment compared with another. An ototopical agent containing neomycin, polymyxin B, and hydrocortisone is frequently used and is effective when given for 7 to 10 days. Mild otitis externa can be treated with a dilute acetic acid solution. And by the way, providing you can visualize the tympanic tympanic membrane, sometimes just irrigating out the ear uh, with warm water um, can actually make this a lot better. Uh, generally speaking, ear, nose, and throat docs are not real excited about us putting uh, plastic syringes in there and irrigating the ear out without them seeing the patient, but uh, have seen that done for sure, uh, particularly in areas that don't have ENT surgeons. Uh, although an allergic reaction should just to talk about the wrong choices. Um, so the, uh, this, the second choice there was delayed type hypersensitivity reaction to the earplugs. And you do have to consider this diagnosis. Uh, it's Although an allergic reaction to the plastic earplug should be considered, a delayed type for hypersensitivity reaction is unlikely because of the purulent discharge and the much higher likelihood that the patient has bacterial acute otitis externa. You know that swimming history. If you're thinking about your neurocalisthenics, if you hear uh, swimming, uh daily especially and then somebody comes in this way um, there's it's really the diagnosis of choice the late type hypersensitivity reactions also known as contact dermatitis are typically characterized by erythema and edema with vesicles or bullae that often rupture leaving a crust and for those of you that have ever had poison ivy poison sumac or poison oak which are all basically part of the sumac family uh, you've seen this happen to your to you. You've gotten vesicles and or bullae, and then afterwards, when all those things pop and drain, you get a crust there. Allergic reactions to plastic in hearing aids, metal in earrings, or even otic suspension drops used to treat otitis externa should always be considered in the differential diagnosis of an inflamed external auditory canal. And uh, indeed, I have seen during my outpatient days. Um, patients who were treated for otitis externa and then came back in a few days to a couple weeks later with a type 4 hypersensitivity reaction to the otic solution that we prescribed. So that's sort of the complication of a treatment. Uh, regarding malignant otitis externa as a choice, uh, this is a much more serious condition in which infection in the ear canal spreads to the cartilage and bones nearby. And the classic board step or shelf question you might get on uh, malignant otitis externa usually involves a diabetic or someone who's otherwise immunocompromised, but it is frequently accompanied by fever, significant pain, and otorrhea which this patient didn't have. Patients usually appear much more ill than this healthy-appearing woman with localized ear discomfort. On physical examination, granulation tissue is often visible along the inferior margin of the external canal. And then finally, uh, pain with tugging on the pinna and movement of the tragus and an inflamed external auditory canal make otitis media highly unlikely as a diagnostic possibility. That you will recall was choice D. In addition, acute otitis media is associated with signs of middle ear effusion and inflammation. So you get erythema of the tympanic membrane, which are not present in this particular patient. So key points for this question, symptoms of otitis externa include otalgia, itching or fullness, and pain intensified by jaw motion. Physical signs include internal tenderness when the tragus or pinna is pushed or pulled, and diffuse ear canal edema, purulent debris, and erythema, which this patient had, but you couldn't see that because I had to describe that image to you. All right, let's, if you have no questions about that one, which you can't ask those questions because this is a one way conversation. Item seven uh, An 84 year old man is evaluated because of a five day history of rhinitis, nasal congestion, sneezing, and non productive cough. The symptoms began with a sore throat, which resolved after 24 hours. He has mild ear pain when blowing his nose or coughing. He has a history of coronary artery disease and hypertension. Medications are aspirin, metoprolol, and hydrochlorothiazide. On physical examination, temperature is 36.5 degrees centigrade, blood pressure is 130 over 72 millimeters of mercury, pulse rate is 82 per minute, and respiratory rate is 16 per minute. In other words his vital signs are normal he has nasal congestion and occasional cough there is mild clear nasal discharge with no sinus tenderness the oral pharynx has no injection or exudate there is no lymphadenopathy external auditory canals are normal the tympanic membranes are dull bilaterally without injection a small left middle ear effusion is noted which of the following is the most appropriate management And you better get this one right, because I guarantee you this will be on your boards if you go into medicine. It'll be on step two, step three, and probably the shelf exam. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? So this is a management question. You have to know the diagnosis before you can decide the management, however. So choice A is amoxicillin, B azithromycin, C referral to an laryngologist a.k.a. an ear, nose, and throat doctor, or D, reassurance and observation. Again, choices A, amoxicillin, B, azithromycin, C, referral to an otorhinolaryngologist. I love saying that. D, reassurance and observation. So enter your choice in the answer column, which you probably don't have, um, but that's okay because I don't have one either. So the choice here should be answer D. That is the correct answer. Um, And this patient has signs and symptoms of a viral upper respiratory tract infection. And the reason you're going to get this on all of your future tests is that antibiotics are grossly overused in this situation. Patients come in expecting antibiotics that they don't need for a viral upper respiratory tract infection. And you sure better not choose an antibiotic to treat this patient. particularly given that it's a slam dunk over the plate uh, viral upper respiratory infection. The recent development of ear pain and the findings of a dull tympanic membrane and a small middle ear effusion are compatible with either otitis media or a viral URI without otitis media. So you can have, of course, a viral otitis media, which this patient might have an early uh, form of. Treatment of otitis media in adults has not been well studied. There are no guidelines for antibiotic use in adults separate from those for children. In children older than two years without severe illness, outcomes appear to be similar for observation without antibiotics compared with antibiotic treatment. So you're wondering, why? so why do we frequently give antibiotics to kids with otitis media? Well, partly it's those parents, partly it's our own Um, worry about those children getting sicker and having complications. And part of it's the literature is not always totally clear in this area. But in any case, the strategy to reduce the use of antimicrobials has not been evaluated in adults and it is not known whether antibiotics are associated with improved short or long term outcomes. However, antibiotic use is associated with adverse effects and higher levels of antibiotic resistance that should be considered in conjunction with the lack of evidence regarding benefit. Considering the patient's equivocal diagnosis of otitis media and mild symptoms, it would be reasonable to withhold antibiotic therapy. That's certainly what most physicians would do in this situation, by the way. When an antibiotic is prescribed, amoxicillin is recommended as first-line therapy in adults Azithromycin can be used in a patient who is allergic to penicillin, but they point out that there's no evidence that it is more effective than penicillin-type antibiotics. Consultation with an otorhinolaryngologist is not indicated because the patient only has a URI, and man, that otorhinolaryngologist is probably not going to be amused. Um, although he'll pat you on the shoulder and tell you that everything's going to be fine, which sometimes is a good thing. So key point here, do not routinely prescribe antibiotic therapy for adults with otitis media or for sure something you think is is viral. So on to item number eight. Um, A 26-year-old woman is evaluated in the emergency department for an eight-day history of sore throat, fever, and neck pain. Could this be another viral URI? Well, let's see. She has severe pain on the left side of her neck with swallowing. Hmm, that's not common in a viral URI. She has had fevers for the last week with rigors starting today. Over the last three to four days, she has had increasing cough. She is otherwise healthy and takes no medications. On physical examination, temperature is 39.1 degrees centigrade, which is 102.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 108 over 68 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 116 per minute. And respiratory rate is 20 per minute. Body mass index is 19. She appears ill. The neck is tender to palpation along the left side without lymphadenopathy. The pharynx is erythematous with tonsillar enlargement and no exudates. The chest is cleared to auscultation. The remainder of the examination is normal. Chest radiograph is shown. I'll read that for you uh, in a second. Leukocyte count is 18,400 per microliter with 17% band forms. Uh Uh-oh. Serum creatinine level is 0.8 milligrams per deciliter. So what the chest x-ray shows basically is uh, multiple uh, opacities throughout both lungs um, without like a really truly focal uh, consolidation. So um, that's the finding so with that in mind which of the following tests is most likely to establish the diagnosis once again this is a diagnosis question and next step to basically confirm your suspicion so you have to kind of know about this particular case this would be considered an advanced question Uh, internal medicine residents would get this on the boards You might get this on step two or step three, but, uh, and you may see this. So which of the following tests is most likely to establish the diagnosis? A, CT of the chest with contrast, B, CT of the neck with contrast, C, radiography of the pharyngeal soft tissues, and by that I take it to mean x-rays of the pharyngeal soft tissues, or D, transthoracic echocardiography. All right, so this is, uh, if you don't know about this particular disease entity, this is a challenging question, and if you do, then you're golden, uh, because uh, I'll read those choices again. CT of the chest with contrast, CT of the neck with contrast, radiography of the pharyngeal soft tissues, or transthoracic echocardiography. And so the answer here happens to be B. This patient should undergo CT of the neck with contrast, And the reason there is because they've got this pain on the side of their neck uh, in the setting of the fact that they have what look like septic emboli in their lungs. She has fever, leukocytosis, sore throat, unilateral neck tenderness, and multiple densities on chest radiographs suggestive of septic emboli. The combination of these factors points strongly towards something that is known as Lemier syndrome, which is septic thrombosis of the internal jugular vein. The diagnosis should be suspected in anyone with pharyngitis, persistent fever, neck pain, and septic pulmonary emboli. one thing they don't mention here, well, I'll tell you a couple of things they don't mention here in a second. CT uh, of the affected vessel with contrast would confirm the diagnosis. Treatment includes intravenous antibiotics that cover streptococci, anaerobes, and beta-lactamase-producing organisms. Penicillin with a beta-lactamase inhibitor and carbapenem are both reasonable choices, such as unison, which is ampicillin sulbactam uh, You could use Piptazo, aka piperacillin tazobactam, or ticarcillin with clavolinate. Um, and, and so a couple things that they leave out of this that I think are very much worth knowing about this disease entity, one, it tends to occur in patients between roughly the ages of 15 and 30. And this particular patient, if I go back in the question, was 26 years old, so she perfectly fits the demographics. It's not a disease that occurs so much in patients older than 30, although I did see a case of it last year in a 56-year-old man who was on dialysis. Uh, So the other thing to know about this particular entity is that the most common bacterial organism is uh, Fusobacterium necrophorum. And uh, we had a case of this last year that one of our students did a poster at the regional ACP meeting Uh, in Northern California on, and our patient actually grew strep, the coccal anginosis, and fusobacterium necrophorum out of her blood, and she was having many septic emboli, was hypoxemic, on oxygen, um, and really, really sick uh, for a couple of weeks here in the hospital. Uh, She ended up doing fine, but her CT scan of of course showed this uh, thrombosis the other interesting thing was she developed a murmur um, over her tricuspid valve in the tricuspid listening area uh, approximately 10 days into her stay and we got an echocardiogram and she had developed the endocarditis um, so that bought her a total of eight weeks of iv antibiotic therapy but she she did okay anyway so think Fusobacterium necrophorum that's the classic organism and uh, the age being 15 to 30. Those are things they do not mention in the explanations to this, but I guess they s- space did not allow for further articulation of these issues. So regarding the other choices that were incorrect, uh, chest CT would better characterize the pulmonary infiltrates, but this information would not provide specific diagnostic information that would guide therapy. Um, Soft tissue radiography of the neck cannot detect jugular vein filling defects or thromboses, which are diagnostic of septic thromboflubias. That would just be a wasted uh, test if you got an x-ray of her neck. And echocardiography would be helpful to exclude right-sided endocarditis as a cause of septic emboli. However, there is nothing in the history or on cardiac examination to suggest the cardiac source of the septic emboli. You're seeing the septic emboli on the chest x-ray. But you're not, in, in a question like this, they're always going to give you some sort of murmur that goes with that endocarditis. And I'm just going to uh, check in on my um, thing here to make sure that it's still recording, which it is. Excellent. All right. So hopefully you don't have any questions about that one. But uh, oh, and the key point here is the diagnosis of septo- septic thrombosis of the jugular vein known as Lemire. That's spelled M. Oh, sorry l-e-m-i-e-r-r-e syndrome should be suspected in patients with pharyngitis, persistent fever, neck pain, and septic pulmonary emboli. So, fun question. I really like that one. That's one of my favorite diagnoses. Um, Not that common, uh, but does occur sometimes they think in little blips. Although, actually, Bob Centaur has an excellent podcast on this, on the ACP uh, Annals podcast, and he knows a lot about sore throats, and he thinks this is way more common than we think it is, um, uh, but they don't have exact numbers, but uh, so you got to think about this, uh, this diagnosis. All right, uh, item nine, a 68-year-old man is evaluated in the emergency department because of fever, shortness of breath, and productive cough. He felt ill a week ago, and his symptoms have progressively worsened. A month ago, he was hospitalized in the intensive care unit because of respiratory failure. He has a history of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and uses an ipratropium and albuterol inhaler. He has a 45-pack year history of smoking and continues to smoke. On physical examination, temperature is 38.4 degrees centigrade or 101.1 Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 110 over 68 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 114, respiratory rate is 24 per minute, and oxygen saturation is 90% on ambient air. Body mass index is 19. Pulmonary examination shows crackles at the right base. Leukocyte count is 19,000 per microliter, with 70% segmented neutrophils and 10% band forms. Chest radiograph for students that aren't aware what those band forms are indicative of, uh, frequently indicative of bacterial infection. By the way, chest radiograph shows a right lower lobe consolidation. Blood cultures are obtained, and treatment with intravenous fluids is initiated. Which of the following is the most appropriate empiric antibiotic treatment? A. Cefazolin, B. Ceftriaxone and Azithromycin, C. Ceftriaxone and Ciprofloxacin, or D. Piperacillin Tazobactam and Amikacin. All right. Once more, those choices. Which is the following most appropriate empiric antibiotic treatment in this patient with what appears to be a pneumonia? One month after being admitted to the ICU, going home, coming back now. A. Cefazolin, B. Ceftriaxone and Azithromycin, C. Ceftriaxone and Ciprofloxacin, or D. Piperacillin Tazobactam and Amikacin. So the answer here is D, which is the Piperacillin Tazobactam and Amikacin. The most Appropriate. And, and you guys probably nailed this question if you've been doing anything on the wards or in the ICU. This is a patient who was recently hospitalized and is at high risk uh, for Pseudomonas aeruginosa pneumonia. The most appropriate antibiotic therapy uh, for this patient is the Piptazo and Amikacin. Pseudomonas aeruginosa, aeruginosa pneumonia should be suspected in patients with a history of smoking and chronic lung disease. Other risk factors for pseudomonas pneumonia include broad spectrum antibiotic use in the previous month, recent hospitalization, malnutrition, which he sounds a little malnourished with his BMI of 19, neutropenia, and glucocorticoid use. uh, uh, pseudomonas aeruginosa pneumonia can be severe and life-threatening and appropriate initial antibiotic selection is crucial. Treatment with a combination of two antimicrobial agents to which P-originosa shows in vitro susceptibility, typically a beta-lactam and an aminoglycoside, should be started empirically. It still remains, though, controversial whether combination therapy is more efficacious than monotherapy. Um... Traditionally, combination therapy has been recommended to broaden the impaired coverage and to prevent the emergence of antibiotic resistance during therapy. However, I have definitely seen my share of monotherapy for patients with suspected um, pneumonias related to recent hospitalization and such. So um, I think this would probably be, can fall into the, <clears throat> um, I wouldn't say controversial, but to be discussed with your attending kind of category or your ID uh, fellow or attending even better. Empiric treatment with cefazolin, ceftriaxone, azithromycin, or ceftriaxone, and ciprofloxacin is not appropriate for a patient with suspected P-originosa pneumonia because these antibiotics are ineffective in the treatment of pseudomonas infections. So the key point here is initial empiric therapy with two anti-pseudomonal agents should be initiated in patients with risk factors for pseudomonas uh, pneumonia. Um, I think there's people who would have covered this patient for atypicals, given how sick he was initially coming in as well. But again, you know, you can't sort of parse these questions too much. They're just doing their best to teach you sort of core uh, things. Final question for $2,000, which you can collect at a later date, is a 70-year-old man is evaluated in the emergency department because of shortness of breath cough, and purulent sputum. His symptoms began a week ago and have progressively worsened. He has never smoked. On physical examination, the patient is alert and oriented and appears dyspneic. Temperature is 40.2 degrees or 104.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure is 112 over 60 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 100 per minute. Respiratory rate is 30 per minute. And oxygen saturation is only 89% on ambient air. Pulmonary examination shows right-sided crackles and dullness to percussion. Chest radiograph shows a right-sided consolidation. Blood cultures are obtained and treatment with empiric antibiotics is initiated. Which of the following is the most appropriate disposition for this patient? A. Admit for overnight observation. B. Admit to the intensive care unit. C. Admit to the medical ward. Or D. Discharge home on oral antibiotics. So this is a management question. You probably had no trouble diagnosing this patient with pneumonia, but the question is, given his severity of illness, where does he belong? Home, on observation, in the ICU, or in the medical wards? All right, so let's talk about this answer because this is definitely one that's worth knowing. It's a very practical uh, question, something we should all know when it comes to deciding about a patient's disposition when they come to the hospital with pneumonia. So the most appropriate disposition for the patient is admission to the medical ward. The decision regarding admission is often complex. I'll say that again because we see a lot of pneumonia and it's... Not always an easy decision. So prognostic models such as the CURB-65, which stands for confusion, blood urea, and nitrogen. Um, so confusion is one of the CURB-65 criteria. Blood urea and nitrogen greater than 19.6 milligrams per deciliter, respiratory rate greater than or equal to 30 per minute systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters of mercury or diastolic less than 60 and age greater than or equal to 65 years. That's the CURB-65. And I find this one actually the easiest one to remember. So let's, uh, and then the other one that people sometimes use is pneumonia, Pneumonia Severity Index, or PSI. Um, And basically, these were developed to identify patients who require hospitalization and avoid unnecessary admissions. CURB-65 is used to identify patients who are at risk for complications as well. Patients who meet zero criteria have a 0% mortality rate. The mortality rate increases to 8.3% when patients meet two criteria and 20 percent when they meet three or more criteria. So patients who meet two criteria usually are admitted to the hospital and those who meet three criteria are at least considered for ICU admission. And there's a lot that goes into deciding whether they end up in the ICU but uh, suffice to say you can try and apply the CURB-65 to figure that out or help you figure that out. The patient is at moderate risk in this Question. considering his age and tachypnea, and needs to be admitted to the hospital for sure. I don't think anyone in their right mind would send a patient with uh, a respiratory rate of 30 uh, uh, home uh, in this situation, but be that as it may, he is hemodynamically stable, and ICU admission is not currently indicated. So the pneumonia severity index predicts the mortality risk based on 20 clinical factors, including patient age, comorbidities, physical exam findings, and laboratory data, and stratifies patients into five mortality risk classes. Patients who are at medium or high risk, which is greater than 70 points, should be admitted to the hospital. And based on this model, the patient turns out to be at medium risk because of his age, fever, tachypnea, and hypoxia. Therefore, he does, again, requires hospital admission, whether you use the CURB-65 or the PSI. One study compared the PSI with the CURB-65 criteria and found that both approaches identified low-risk patients, but the CURB-65 was more discriminating in predicting individual mortality risk in high-risk patients. Uh, Plus, it's a heck of a lot easier to remember than 20 different criteria. Overnight observation or discharge on oral antibiotics would not be appropriate because of the severity of this particular patient's illness. So the key point in this question, prognostic models such as CURB-65 and the pneumonia severity index may help to identify patients with community-acquired pneumonia who are at risk for complications and require admission to the hospital. And we're going to stop there for today. We've gotten a good five questions under your belts, into your ears, and hopefully into those brains for future use in the clinical setting or uh, in any testing situation. I hope you've enjoyed this and have a great day or great evening, depending on when you're listening to this.